for the week of October 31st, 2013. This is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media, coming to you as usual from Washington, D.C. With me are my two co-hosts. Also in Washington is Catherine Hamilton, energy policy guru and founder of 38 North Solutions. And in San Francisco is Jigger Shaw, energy futurist and author of the book Creating Climate Wealth. I know that you can't see us, but we wanted to celebrate the holiday, Halloween, anyway. All of us are here in scary, energy-themed costumes. Uh, Catherine Hamilton, hello to you. Uh, what did you dress up as today for the podcast? Yeah, so I was going to go as Big Poppy, but I shaved because the series ended last night. I got rid of the beard. So instead, I'm going to go with Ready Kilowatt which was the mascot for the electric industry for about 60 years. This is, uh, since we're going to be talking about the developing world, I thought bringing back Ready Kilowatt was going to be real good. All right. Jigger, how about you? What did you decide to dress up as? I grew up my beard, uh, wore a suit, and I'm calling myself Al Gore, the climate millionaire. <laughs> is that a disparaging remark or is that? No, uh, a positive one. I actually think he's done a great job investing in clean tech. Neither of you dressed up in scary costumes, so I decided to go for something kind of frightening. I'm dressed up like a TEPCO worker cleaning up the Fukushima nuclear power disaster. I've got a hazmat suit, the yellow hat, the booties, all of it. So here we are, you know, a squad of energy professionals, but we don't take ourselves too seriously here. So before we begin... We have a really cool announcement to make. We have mentioned before that our live show is coming up in D.C. on November 12th at the MDVCS Solar Focus Conference, and we learned that we have booked a very special guest who will be joining us. Catherine, you want to tell people who's going to be there next week or in two weeks? Yes, it's going to be Chairman John Wellinghoff of the FERC. And Wellinghoff is getting ready to transition out of FERC, and he's going over to the law firm Stoll Reeves. But we're going to get a chance to catch up with him on his way out, and I think he's probably going to be more open than ever now that he's on his way out. Yes, I think that that is a good characterization. I think it's going to be a great conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So you can come watch him and us on November 12th uh, here in D.C. Tickets to that are at mdvcia.org slash solarfocus2013. And along with a full conference pass, you can get a ticket to the Energy Gang show for just 25 bucks. And Jigger, we're doing something special with your book, right? Yeah. So people who are um, coming to the show are going to um, have an access to get a, have a chance to get a free book uh, through a little contest that we're going to have there for the best questions. And uh, we can, you can buy the book as well. We're going to do a book signing there. Absolutely. Should be a lot of fun. All right, well, let's get the show started. So we've got someone who's been patiently hanging around in the background, sitting there silently, also in his Halloween costume. It is Justin Gway, the man who leads Sierra Club's international program. And he is with us also in San Francisco, sitting in the same room as Jigger. Justin, welcome to the show. Tell us, what are you wearing to mark the doubly exciting occasion of Halloween and an appearance on the Energy Gang? Thanks, Stephen. Very excited to join you guys. And uh, I'm glad that you asked because it's a bit awkward, the costume I'm wearing, given the fact that I'm sitting next to Jigger. I'm actually dressed as the World Bank's plan to invest in clean energy access for the developing world, which means I'm not wearing anything. <laughs> you have us all beat. Jigger, how are you handling that over there? You're really calm. It is very awkward. <laughs> well, you guys are good friends, so we know you can handle it. That brings us nicely into the reason why we brought Justin here to talk about the vast potential 
for distributed generation in developing countries. Um, I know it's a subject near and dear to both Justin and Jigger's hearts. We're going to look at why the opportunity is so big and go into Justin's costume, why some of the biggest financial and development institutions are only just starting to grasp it. Then in our second segment, we're going to talk about the grid legacy of Superstorm Sandy one year after the disaster. And in our third segment, we will ask what the coming shakeup of Germany's second biggest utility says about the future of big power companies. Finally, we'll tell you something you may not know to wrap up the show. On to our first topic. There are still 1.3 billion people around the world without access to the grid. And there are a lot of smart people out there working to get modern energy services to these people. But what's the best way to do it and to do it fast? The International Energy Agency says that 60% of access will need to come from distributed resources like solar lanterns, solar electric systems, LEDs, and microgrids. But are these technologies getting the attention from development banks and local governments to help create the structures for distributed energy access? Justin Guay says no. And as you could tell from what he's wearing or what he's not wearing, um, he believes that the big institutions have not caught on to this yet. Um, so, be, Justin, before we get into that, why don't you outline for us some of the technology and service trends that you see happening that make you believe that distributed energy sources, distributed renewables are the best way to get energy access to this 1.3 billion people? Absolutely. Thanks, Stephen. <clears throat> um, so I think to understand why distributed renewables are the future for not only the 1.3 billion people around the world who don't have power, but the additional 2 billion who have what my colleague Carl Pope calls spasmodic power, which is, you know, they may have a wire, but they only get a couple hours of electricity every day. So what we're looking at is really half the planet who doesn't have reliable energy services. Um, and the reason that that is the case is that when it comes to development policy and energy access investments that are uh, designed by many of the world's development professionals and the development institutions like the World Bank, it's essentially the old axiom that when all you have is a hammer, all you see are nails. And so what these policy professionals and investment bankers are uh, attempting to do is push a 20th century solution on a 21st century problem. So, you know, their solution to 1.3 billion people not having power is that we need to uh, supply as many gigawatts as humanly possible. And then we need to extend the grid to far flung rural areas to ensure that everybody has as much power as we have. And what that leads to is a bunch of hand-wringing, you know, people who are saying, oh, dear God, how will we ever uh, raise all of the money that will be required? How will we ever create the opportunity and the, uh, the you know, political will in these countries to make it happen? Um, and what we've seen over the, you know, last decades is that it simply hasn't worked. Um, and so even though it hasn't worked, these people are still interested in doubling down on business as usual, which we know means failure as usual. Um, the interesting, exciting piece, though, is that there are entrepreneurs all around the world who are busy making, basically making an end run around this uh, centralized business model, and they're doing some really exciting stuff. So if you look at a country like Bangladesh, they're selling thirty to 40,000 solar home systems every month, and they're looking to scale from a current 1 million installed systems to about 4.2 million by 2015. So that's 25% of all rural households in a country that is predominantly predominantly rural. And you see that everywhere across the off-grid space. You have Sunny Money selling about 40,000 solar lanterns every month. Um, you're looking at 300%. Wait, Justin, I have to say, is that Sunny Money? 
That's right. That's an awesome name. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that, if, if there's one thing you can say about the off-grid space, it's that we have really, really in, inventive names. <laughs> and inventive business models. But let me stop you there. And if I don't have my head in this every day and I take a look at the press releases coming out of the World Bank and other institutions, I'm thinking, well, clearly they understand the the – potential for distributed resources. Um, the UN has rolled out this Sustainable Energy for All initiative, which is seeking to raise hundreds of billions of dollars for energy efficiency projects and energy access projects, many of which will be distributed. They were able to raise about $500 billion in commitments from governments and from private institutions at the uh, Rio Plus 20 conference. The World Bank itself, if you look at, say, press releases and reports that it puts out, has called for $174 billion in funding for renewables in developing countries, $390 billion for efficiency, but only $45 billion for large-scale grid expansion. So on its face, what they're saying seems to stack up with, with what you're saying. Why do you believe these institutions aren't supporting this level of distributed development that, that you're laying out? Well, I think it'll be great to hear Jigger's uh, opinion on this as well. But, you know, my take is that these institutions were built for a certain type and model of investment. And what that favors is essentially large-scale centralized expansion uh, because they have high overheads. Uh, staff are, you know, pushed up through the ranks when they push large-ticket projects out the door. Uh, and so what it means is that there's a disincentive to doing smaller-scale projects or even aggregating smaller-scale projects. And I think what you have to do with all of those numbers is actually follow where their investments go. And what you'll see is that while there's a lot of talk about distributed generation, there's not a lot of action when it actually comes down to it. And so you see some really exciting programs like Lighting Africa uh, at the IFC, which are doing great work, but it's mostly technical assistance. There's no actual dollar investments being made. And so I think that's really the problem we see today is that you know the IEA has outlined a plan that says – you know, 60% of all investment to achieve universal electrification must go to distributed renewable energy. And yet when we look at the investment flows coming out of these agencies, they are overwhelmingly skewed towards centralized grid expansion. And so I think, you know, the, the big test right now is to actually put their money where their mouth is. And I think, you know, while I'm not exactly waiting or holding my breath, uh, I do see lots of uh, interesting stuff happening even around them. You know, you see anything from impact investors to uh, Bamboo uh, Solar Finance, which ha now has a $30 million equity fund that they will be closing in January. So there are investors who are stepping up to the plate to make this happen. Uh, and the question really just becomes, will the development institutions help lead the way or will they kind of turn around and realize the world has changed around them? Well, you know, I think it's important to first recognize the economic opportunity. When you think about how these people have energy today, they're not without energy. They just use primitive forms of energy like kerosene, diesel, in some cases burning wood, um, or uh, charcoal, which is very expensive for folks. And so, so folks are actually spending money on energy. It's just that that, mon that money is actually not going very far because that's ridiculously expensive forms of energy. When you think about a solar lantern, in many of these places, a solar lantern has a six-week or eight-week payback. So we're not talking about a one-year payback or a three-year payback. We're talking about a cash flow problem where it's cheaper for people to pay $0.85 cents for a thing of kerosene than to pay $7 for, 
for um, for a solar lantern, which then will pay itself back over a few weeks of kerosene usage. And so I think that as opposed to the grid-connected space where we're all very comfortable talking about the issues, in this space, there's a, an entirely different set of challenges. And we don't actually need a lot of government money. What we need is government support, government planning. So we need the government in India, for instance, to say to the people there that we are never going to serve you with the grid. It's just never going to happen. So stop waiting for us to come and use these other services. And, you know, and, and that message actually is very critical. There's a lot of villages who are holding out hope that they're going to get a grid extension next year or two years from now, and they've been waiting for 20 years. So that argument plays over well with environmental groups and Western audiences. But is it political suicide for a government, say India's government, to say, sorry, the grid's really never going to reach you and here are some other alternatives? I mean, how do they message that in a way that doesn't sound like they're giving up on these communities? Well, I mean, I think it's actually very similar to what Saudi Arabia's problem is, right? I mean, what you need to do is actually say to people that this is a superior form of energy. In the same way that Saudi Arabia burns its own oil, about 30% or so of its own oil for its own internal use, they need to say, actually, solar power, wind power, hydro, gasified biomass, and all these other technologies are a far superior way for you to gain energy independence than what you're currently using now. And we are going to help you leapfrog the technology of grids in the same way that we leapfrog the technology in landline phones. And uh, what I would offer to this is um, that this is not just about money, but that it's also about time that can translate into economic development. So the time to collect sticks or carry water or use stone grinders that can instead you know, household products that are that are working off of clean energy can save time and you're able to use do economic development in other ways. I talked to a colleague of mine, Rahul Wallawalker, who runs the Indian Energy Storage Alliance, and he thinks that, you know, the solar storage hybrid, those um, five to ten minutes that it takes to charge uh, those energy lamps with batteries is going to save a huge amount of time and give people, free them up from things that they have to do that are really basic, that we don't even think about every day um, that will allow them to then work on other things that will be more economically beneficial for them. Well, that's a nice segue into the enabling technologies. Justin, you've written a lot about some interesting developments in mobile technologies and uh, cell towers and how those can enable solar development. Uh, Tell us a little bit about some of the enabling technologies that you see. Interestingly, there are almost half a billion people out there who have access to cell phones, but who don't have access to energy. So there's a lot of cell phone infrastructure that can be used to develop, say, solar for both cell phone charging and therefore other energy needs within a home that they can take with them. Tell me a little bit about how that's evolving. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the way to understand the potential of this space is really largely through the mobile lens. So if we think about mobile phone technology as a precedent setter for this market, I mean, look back to the mid-90s, roughly 1% of the developing world had access to a mobile phone. 
Fast forward to today, 75% of all mobile phone connections are in emerging markets. And four out of five new connections emerge, come from emerging markets going forward. So, you know, it's been a tremendous leapfrog technology, and it's really laid the base for a number of interesting applications that are enabling this field. So the first and most important is that now people, as you said, have a cell phone, which is a game-changing technology, and they have no way to charge it. I mean, these are people living in huts off the grid who might use candles or even kerosene to light their homes. And so you suddenly have uh, basically a, a significant amount of demand just to make sure that these mobile phones stay charged. And so, you know, while we have policymakers who are wringing their hands about how they're ever going to find money to be able to solve this problem, for a while, the mobile phone companies were actually giving away solar panels because they actually made more money by making sure that those cell phones stayed charged. So I think, you know, again, it kind of flips the whole uh, paradigm and the whole way of thinking about this issue as a problem versus an opportunity on its head. Um, and I think the, the other really interesting piece here is the kind of con, uh, convergence between mobile phone technology, mobile money, and solar. So there are some really exciting companies like MCOPA working in East Africa, which are leveraging mobile money networks to enable, basically unlock consumer finance so that people don't have to pay the entire amount of money for a solar home system or a solar lantern up front. They can pay and unlock the systems by uh, sending text messages with mobile money loaded on their mobile phones and unlock the power as they need it. And that is really revolutionary. Um, and I think that that is where you will see this market really get unlocked because, um, you know, at the end of the day, the economics, as Jigger said, for solar are so much more compelling in these markets. But even though they're so much more compelling, they're still a significant finance issue. And I think as soon as we solve that finance issue, um, then we will have a, an enormous market opportunity that will have tremendous uh, social impacts as well. Yeah, indeed. This mobile banking piece is crucial, too. And as you've outlined before, there are two and a half billion people out there who don't even have basic access to the financial system, and they rely on mobile banking. So you combine that with the half a billion people with cell phones, and you've got a system here that could potentially unlock a lot of renewable energy development. Yeah, I, I'm curious just to take this to, you know, this is all very positive, but let's think about why this isn't happening. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of uh, arguing going on in the background right now, which I'd love for you to shed some light on between, you know, Bono's organization at One, who is saying, look, you know, energy access is better than working on climate change, and so we should be supporting diesel, we should be supporting anything that gets people energy. You know, how do you square their arguments with what you guys are doing? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, much weeping and gnashing of teeth over whether or not environmentalists and others who are interested in this, these questions are essentially attempting to deny the poor the energy. And I think this goes back to the whole idea that instead of looking forward and looking at this as an opportunity to create you know, creative solutions, we keep looking in the rearview mirror and saying, what did we do in the 20th century and how do we, you know, essentially put that square peg in a round hole? Um, and so what the one organization and, and others have said is that essentially, you know, the West used uh, fossil fuel technology, centralized grid infrastructure to get where they are today. Therefore, everyone must do it. Um, you know, and, and the question becomes, it's not so much are we trying to deny that as a possible path. It's more let's look at the reality. So you look at a country like India. They have uh, increased their supply side of energy 60% over the past decade. They've only increased access to energy by 10%. 
Uh, you look at sub-Saharan Africa. Across the continent, they predict that population growth will outpace grid expansion so that there will be a larger population without power in 2030 than there is today. So the question just becomes, you know, who is really trying to deny these populations energy? I mean, is it people who refuse to recognize that business as usual is not working? Or is it the people who are saying, look, let's be honest and frank with ourselves. This isn't working. We need new solutions. And it just so happens that, you know, even though everybody has this very firm narrative that clean energy is more expensive and it's anti-poor, the truth is it is the development solution for this population. And we need to recognize it as such. It's not an environmental issue. This is a development issue. But how do we win this debate? I mean, Bono's got a big megaphone, right? I mean, are we going to well, get outspent here like can, we did you, in the Koch brothers? Let's take a step back and give our listeners some context about this Bono issue. Absolutely. So um, there is a big fight going on that has only recently come out from behind the shadows around the Overseas Private Investment Corporation's greenhouse gas cap. So that's a lot of jargon. But essentially what it means is that the, o the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, read, uh, led by President Littlefield, um, has basically received policy guidance that they need to reduce their fossil fuel investments. Now, that policy guidance has really transformed the agency. They are now uh, punching well above their weight when it comes to clean energy. I mean, to give you an example, they have roughly a $4 billion annual portfolio. A quarter of that goes to clean energy. If you compare that to the Export-Import Bank, they have a portfolio that is eight times the size, and they are investing a quarter as much in clean energy. So, you know, it's a really important policy. It's really driven change at the agency, and they're very happy and excited about it. Um, and now they're even at the frontier of creating, you know, new pots of money that are specifically for supporting off-grid clean technology that supports the poor. Now, what you have is an organization like One and, and many others who now are saying, well, hold on a minute. You know, we are denying the poor energy because we're stuck in a mindset that is from the 1990s and, you know, the early 2000s when, you know, solar was more expensive and when we still thought grid expansion might work. And so we're saying you need to roll back all of those policies and we need to be able to invest in whatever we need to invest in to support the poor. Now, the reality of that is we've seen what these uh, investments, you know, look like. The World Bank invested in a, you know, $4 billion project, uh, the Madupi coal plant in South Africa. That power goes to large industrial users and large uh, consumers in, in urban areas. And that's fine, but let's not pretend that this is power that goes to the poor. So I think, you know, what, what is happening is that there is a lot of people talking past each other, and there's very little understanding of the very complex issues around energy access and energy poverty. Help me understand the economic opportunity here. How big is the off-grid market? How long would it take to develop a large centralized grid to reach these people? And then compared to that time frame, how long would it take to deploy distributed renewables and get some level of energy access that can increase the value in people's lives, uh, the value of energy in people's lives? Can you break this down and, and give me a comparison between the, the two paradigms? Absolutely. Uh, you know, Jigger was just on a panel last night at the uh, the Indus Entrepreneur Silicon Valley uh, location talking about this opportunity. And he has a great number, which is that, you know, to solve this problem just in India alone would cost $100 billion. That would be able to provide every household with a minimum level of energy services that will charge a mobile phone, provide LED-based lighting, and potentially charge, you know, a, a ceiling fan, maybe even a TV. 
Now, nobody is saying that that is enough, but that is a start. And to think that that is not transformational in and of its own right is actually egregious. Um, now, to be able to do that, you know, compared to the grid expansion plans, it's not even so much a question of how much money it will cost. I think that, you know, it's, it's still a fraction of what they are claiming for grid expansion. But the question is just how nimble, fast, and effective it will be. I mean, we're talking about deploying off-the-shelf technology, uh, you know, in a matter of months compared to waiting 5, 10, 15 years to build a plant, let alone expand the grid. So I think that the real power here is that it matters in a time frame that actually impacts people's lives, which is now, not five years from now, ten years from now. And the numbers that I would throw out there for you, just to give you a sense for the investors out there, um, you know, look at some of the uh, global cash flows that are flowing into energy services right now for this population. So ARC Finance, led by Nikki Armacost, has estimated that basically 10 to 25 percent of all remittances globally are used to provide money to households to buy kerosene and, and electricity. That market in 2011 was $325 billion. So if you look at 10 to 25% of that, you're looking at anywhere from 32 to $80 billion every single year spent on incredibly poor quality energy services that can be replaced, displaced by clean energy. So, you know, that's one data point. I think another important data point is um, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, which found that if, if we were able to uh, secure 1% of all retail investments uh, in the United States and secure that through crowdfunding, we would have about $90 billion to deploy at this, par- at this problem. And I'm, I'm personally very bullish on crowdfunding because of the difficulties in raising finance from traditional institutions. So I think that the, you know, the long and short of it is that there, it's a multi-billion dollar opportunity. It's going to be much faster and more effective than grid extension. And at the end of the day, I will take a bird in the hand over two in the bush. Well, I love this space, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Justin Guay leads the Sierra Club's international program. Justin, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, guys. I'm going to go put some clothes on. (laughs) Excellent. Make sure you cover yourself up before you walk by Jigger. (laughs) Will do. All right. Well, let's go on to our second topic. It has been one year since Superstorm Sandy took a surprising turn toward the East Coast, hitting 24 states and battering the New Jersey and New York coastline. Hundreds were sadly killed, and the lights went out for more than 8 million people, some having no power for weeks. In the aftermath, grid operators, utilities, and policymakers are trying to learn from the experience, and smart grid advocates have used it to tout a new mantra, grid resiliency. So what has Superstorm Sandy taught us? Catherine, let's go over to you. Um, What do you think are the lessons learned here? Uh, Have we seen a lot of positive come from utilities or the regulatory sphere from this disaster? Well, you know, we're seeing a lot of pictures about the folks who are still impacted and things that have still not been rebuilt. But that said, I talked to John Cervany uh, last night from New York Best, which is sort of the energy storage group in New York State that NYSERDA stood up. Um, And he said this is um, that grid resilience and what happened to them with this storm has sustained a level of interest 
that he said is just like nothing he's ever seen. He said now everything that they do, every project that they look at, um, you know, whether it's from the building level or from the system level, they they bake in resilience. He said every single question is, what do we do for the system to make sure that this will not happen again? And he attributes this to the leadership of um, Governor Cuomo and Mayor Bloomberg for really pushing on it. I mean, he said if this if Sandy happened now they would not have the same results that happened last year, which is to me really? remarkable. Yes, absolutely. He said it, things have already changed, changed significantly. He said it's hard to even monetize the way they've been sustaining the interest in thinking about this. And what strikes me about this is that if a Hurricane Katrina had happened a year later in Louisiana, I would bet you it, nothing would have changed. I mean, they're still not rebuilt down there. And I don't think the level of interest and the commitment from the leadership in that area has been nearly as significant as the level of interest in New York and the other states. And granted, the population is much denser. They have you know, a utility that's traditionally been one of um, the most reliable utilities in the country. So they think about this a bit more anyway, but this has really spurred innovation, and I, I was I was astounded at his response. I, I, I'm having a hard time believing that the same result wouldn't happen. Help me understand what really has changed in terms of um, protecting lines and wires, deploying more distributed systems, maybe like combined heat and power. What what is out there now? I mean, I know that like public service gas and electric in New Jersey and then Con Ed in New York have spent or are starting to spend billions of dollars in response to Sandy. But have we we seen those full results yet? I don't think we've seen the full results. But what he says is, is that it's baked into everything that they think about now on their system. Everything from, will this manhole cover leak? to, you know, to actually hardening some of the equipment and putting in equipment that's more water repellent or, you know, water resistant. But, I mean, I think what 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 he's he's talking about is that the level of commitment from the top has been all right we are going to do something about this that's really meaningful and we're going to they've started a green bank to try to to spur innovation on the grid i mean they are thinking about it in everything that they do i have to say that the one thing that i th- think is changed in New York, and I'm just for full disclosure, uh, um, an advisor to Richard Kaufman, who's a new energy czar, is that when you look at the new RFPs that LIPA's putting out and Con Ed's putting out, they're actually actively soliciting these smart grid companies, battery storage companies, and others to put in non-conforming bids to providing the same level of service or resiliency or whatever it is that they're asking for in the RFP that they would have traditionally got from a combined cycle gas turbine. Um, and that to me is a huge sea change. Yeah. When, um, when the storm hit and, you know, FEMA had funding to try to rebuild, um, a group of us were trying to make sure that in the legislation to fund the repairs, that there was a clause in there that said, look, when you rebuild, don't just put in what was there before, but rebuild it stronger and better and more resilient. Don't limit this to, to building the grid right back the way it was. Um, that, because of the way the funding went, got kind of thrown out. But Cuomo took that to heart. And Cuomo was actually actively working on that. And that did not happen um, in New Orleans. And I think part of it is that there was no connection to climate. There was no kind of, look, this is going to continue to happen unless we build in some things that are going to make 
it make the grid different. And I think whereas before um, Sandy's smart grid had a lot of those solutions ready, all the synchrophasers, all those sort of ability to gather information and react very quickly had been starting to be put into place, but there was no economic reason to do it. And now with these storms, there absolutely is. Yeah, everyone has been talking a lot about microgrids as well. I know Rockaway Peninsula, which was really brutalized by the storm, is starting to work with DOE and the Smart Grid Consortium to look at the potential for a microgrid or microgrids there. Jigger, is that does that have any viability there? Do you know much about that project or about the broader microgrid grid effort in New York? Yeah, so on the Rockaways project specifically, um, what Richard has done, which I think is really smart, is they put out an RFP saying um, instead of having all these people bid on the project, let's have the state pay for uh, a comprehensive engineering study that everyone then can use to do a proper bid so it's all apples to apples. Um, and so I think the process improvements that they've made for the Rockaways and these microgrids are important. But I think it's the underlying piece here, which I think is important to sort of talk about, is when people build brand new buildings in New York City or folks are trying to build data centers or all these other things, this concept of resiliency and microgrids and things like that are now just part of the budget. It used to be that this was sort of a nice to have. It's sort of like making my building lead platinum. These days, people are looking at this and saying, look, if we want to do business in these areas, we actually have to ask ourselves whether we're resilient enough to be able to you know, protect our employees and actually have um, you know, protection of our business. Interestingly, PJM talked a lot about resiliency uh, when it proposed major transmission upgrades to make up for coal-fired power plants retiring. So this term resiliency is being used a lot now in the power sector. Well, really interesting. I think we can say that there is some good news in the power sector coming out of Sandy. There's a lot of sad news in the press one year on, a lot of people still out of their homes, a lot of infrastructure left unbuilt, but some good lessons that we've learned so far. And uh, I'll be interested to see how these play out in the coming year. Okay, on to our last story. Uh, This is one that Jigger mentioned in the ending segment last week. RWE, Germany's second biggest utility, is planning on making a major shift, facing a massive decline in revenues due to an overbuild of fossil fuel plants and pricing pressures from distributed solar. RWE now says it wants to be an enabler of renewables, a utility that brokers the development of distributed generation and helps it integrate it into the grid. It's a pretty stunning shift for one of the largest owners of coal-fired power plants and a very large emitter, and it could be a sign of things to come across Europe and eventually here in the U.S. Jigger, you were really hot on this story last week. I wrote a story on it, and others have followed up on that. Elaborate for us what you think RWE is trying to do here? Well, I think it's important to note um, how this affects shareholders first, right? And so what we're really asking RWE to do is to double down on their uh, responsibilities for grid reliability and not worry so much about making money off of uh, these other areas. And so they've really become a service company to their consumers who are going to try to either put in their own infrastructure or get power purchase agreements that they sign with other people to put in infrastructure. But in the end, RWE makes sure that all of these things get stitched together. And it's important to note that that service is worth less than what they're doing now. 
So the only reason they're open to it now is because their stock price has been so decimated by the fact that we put so much renewable energy on the grid that most of their wholesale power assets have lost almost all of their value. They've lost one-third their share price in the last couple of years. That's right. And, and the same things happen in the U.S., by the way. Exelon has lost about you know, two-thirds of their share value, and, and NRG has lost a lot of their value because the natural gas and coal plants they had before, as well as nuclear plants, are selling power at a much lower price because wind and solar have really cut the, uh, the wholesale trading prices, particularly off-peak, um, than they were before. I think it's important for our listeners to know that there are still a lot of details here that are not public. This, uh, these come from strategic documents from RWE that it has discussed with, uh, it has discussed internally, and that it is uh, supposedly going to discuss publicly in the coming weeks. So, this is a proposed strategy. We have not necessarily seen the shift yet, and uh, some of this will be determined by the regulatory process as well. How deep RWE gets into this service provider model. Interestingly, this dovetails really nicely with some of the ideas outlined in that America's Power Plan that was released a few weeks ago. And in that plan, they describe this Goldilocks approach, um, or what they call the orchestral approach. And the utility, because it has all this expertise in billing, in grid engineering, um, it could help facilitate the new service providers and the plant development working with the regional grid operators and the individual customers to help enable these new technologies. So this kind of seems where RWE is headed. Again, we don't know exactly where they're going because the plan isn't fully public, but and there are some regulatory unknowns here. But it is a, an approach that has been talked about here in the U.S., and it seems to be the safest bet for the utility because the utility does have all this really important experience in creating reliability on the grid and does have an opportunity to link together these service providers to the customers. So I think this is something we're going to see in the U.S. in the coming years. Yeah, it, it's a little bit, though, that they're trying to change the tires while the car is moving. I mean, they're trying to figure out how are we going to do this differently, especially when you look at the utilities only owning 7% of the renewable energy capacity. This is so disaggregated. There's going to be a huge grid, grid integration and operations issue in, involved that they don't necessarily have total control over. So, you know, one of the solutions that that some folks are looking at is sort of a community-based storage where you have where you're able to um, aggregate the solar um, load into sort of more not centralized more, more community-based um, storage systems that, that then you're able to operate and provide services to the grid because the way it is now they don't really have any control over what those systems are doing. Well, but this is, I just think it's important for everyone to understand, though, that this will permanently make sure that RWE is worth less money. So the reason why they're coming to this now is because their stock price has been decimated. They are not going to proactively do this in the U.S. with all these other utility companies until they feel like they have no other option. I think there are actually ways for utilities to be proactive and make money in this area, like NextEra has done with their wholesale you know, grid portfolio. And now they're actually, they've hired Andrew Beebe, who was formerly of SunTac, to do this in the distributed generation portfolio. So there, is way, there are ways of getting these utilities to actually add shareholder value. But the vast majority of utilities are going to come to this decision after they've already just been beaten up and left for dead in the corner. Okay, so let's wrap up and tell our listeners something they don't know. Jigger, what do you have for us this week? 
So I was in Boulder and um, Denver uh, on Tuesday for my book party and um, talked to a couple of developers there who are actually developing solar projects in Texas. And they were saying that, that because of all the innovation that has happened in India, that they're now projecting that next year they're going to be able to install solar in Texas for a $1.35 a watt all in for 5 to 20 megawatt solar projects. Which That's, I think is blows my mind. That is wow. incredible. And what is the what are the forces behind that? There are new engineering designs that basically really reduce the amount of labor costs necessary to deploy these technologies, so you can do it much faster than you can before. And um, and it's it, it's an amazing thing where it's Indian innovation that has been tested there. Companies like Wari and others um, were prominent at the Solar Power International show. Wari, I think, did 300 megawatts of deployment using their proprietary racking system uh, last year. And so they're now bringing it over to the U.S. because a lot of folks are saying, wow, we really can use that to get our costs down. So I just think it's amazing how module prices have gone to 70 cents a watt. And they're getting BOS prices to come down fast enough so that module prices still remain roughly 50% of the system costs. This industry never fails to surprise. Catherine, tell us something we don't know. Yeah, so speaking of Colorado, the Senator Mark Udall of Colorado and his cousin Tom Udall, who's a senator from New Mexico, introduced for the third go-around their renewable energy standard legislation. And, and it would call for utilities to purchase 25% of their energy from renewable resources by 2025. Um, the Udalls introduced this as soon as Obama was elected in 2008. They did it again in 2011, and now they're doing it again. And, of course, Colorado has a very a strong you know, 30% by 2020 renewable portfolio standard, um, and a lot of other states have them as well. Um, good for these guys for continuing to introduce this and keep this conversation going in the Senate. It won't see the light of day in the House, but at least, you know, they're they're continuing that conversation because honestly, we need something on the federal level. How many times have we tried this since two thousand five? Is this like the seventh time or eighth time? Yeah, I and can't it, keep counting anymore. It was close at one point. It was very close, but you never know. I mean, let's keep it keep it going. I think the Tea Party guys are saying the same thing about defunding Obamacare. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, no, they've had far more votes on Obamacare in the House. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, I have a little dieting secret. How to consume lots of chicken wings and beer and lose 20 pounds. So recently I began eating chicken wings and beer every day. And my doctor told me that if I didn't stop, I was going to gain 40 pounds over the next few months. So I decided to cut back and started eating chicken wings and drinking beer only on the weekends, and I only gained 20 pounds. So theoretically, I lost 20 pounds. It's great. You should try it. So I'm obviously joking here, and this little anecdote doesn't come from me. It comes from a guy named Andrew Leach uh, of the Alberta School of Business who wrote this really great satirical piece in the Canadian magazine Maclean's. Uh, this week, he was using this story to illustrate how the Canadian government and a lot of other governments measure greenhouse gas emissions. So governments often compare GHG emissions to a business as usual scenario, and they can claim some sort of victory by just pointing to emissions growth as if they had just done nothing. So it doesn't mean the policy is really effective. It just means that it didn't lead to an even higher rate of growth. I loved this piece because it, it highlights the complexity and 
oftentimes the absurdity of tracking emissions reductions. And the same lesson can be applied here in the U.S. where, say, natural gas is helping lower CO2 emissions, but it's unclear how much methane, which is this far far more potent greenhouse gas, how much that's increasing as a result of natural gas development. So it's just something to keep in mind the next time we uh, take a look at a glowing emissions report from, from a government. All right. Well, that is going to mark the end of this week's show. For links to the stories that we discussed, go over to greentechmedia.com. While you're surfing the web, be sure to subscribe to this show. You can subscribe to us through SoundCloud, iTunes, or integrate our RSS feed into the player of your choice. If you want to send us ideas for topics or comment on the show, send me an email. I can be reached at Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. For tickets to our live show with special guest John Wellinghoff, go to mdvcia.org slash solarfocus2013, and we'll also link to that at greentechmedia.com. Catherine Hamilton, happy Halloween. Are you going to be out with the kids tonight trick-or-treating? Yeah, I'm the one who stays behind and hands out candy, and uh, my husband does the, takes the Darth Vader, and I think it's going to be a police officer, my two little ones. Fun. And Jigger, same to you. I think that I, I hope that you'll be out and about San Francisco tonight looking for candy. <laughs> I'm not sure I want that kind of candy. <laughs> well, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, good to talk to you both, as always, with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. I'm Stephen Lacey, the senior editor at Green Tech Media, and we are the Energy Gang. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>